and began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Thanks, Steve. You've really got to watch out for this man flu, don't you? It um, multiplies at least 100% when it jumps from a female to a male. But it's just impossible to convince my wife about this. She's, she's got it as well, but um, she's just handling it you know, amazingly well. <clears throat> so anyway, we come to, the, to this last parable this last section of Mark's Gospel. And many have called this the parable of the rejected... Sorry, the parable of the wicked tenants, but it's probably better called the parable of the rejected son. And it's going to become clear about why that would be more appropriate. I want us to think about rejection. Have just, just... I'll do a straw poll. Put your hand up if you've experienced some kind of rejection. Just, yeah. uh, I think everybody would agree that that no matter what it is, it is painful. Whether it's a marriage proposal that goes pear-shaped, I looked at something on YouTube where this Indian fellow had set up in a shopping centre a whole um, arrangement to propose to, to his girlfriend. And he'd organised some of his mates, they had ukuleles and everything there, and, and uh, they quickly whipped out uh, everything they needed to, with microphones. And she th- initially thought it was all just, you know, what's going on here? And then he goes into this spiel about how he loves her and he gets down on bended knee, and she just simply grabs one of the ukuleles, bangs him on the head, and walks away. Her, no interest whatsoever in his proposal. Talk about rejection. He's down on the ground, curled up in the fetal position, thinking, what have I done? What have I done? It might be a writer's manuscript returned in the mail. Rejection that way can be painful. Organ transplants that fail are particularly difficult. 
job applications declined. And my little taste of that um, in 2015 when I was having my sabbatical year, not being financial enough to, to just not work for 12 months, I needed some way of supporting myself and I applied for a whole range of jobs, including... At Officeworks, I applied at Officeworks. <laughs> I got this answer back, your profile doesn't fit what we're looking for. So, all right, OK. You know, what do you put on your resume when you've had 33 years of pastoring? It's, it's, it's very difficult to um, just you know, put down something that you think might be appropriate. But a job application can, that's declined can be very painful. Building permits get refused, gets rejected. You've got to go back and you've got to spend more, have more tests. Home loans declined. Some of you might have experienced that. Passport and visa applications refused. Now, all of these can be different expressions of rejection. Some rejections have extremely obvious and severe consequences, like a heart, lung or kidney transplant where the anti-rejection drugs just don't work and you wind up rejecting, rejecting the organ. A missionary's much-needed visa is refused and everything is lined up and they're ready to go and they can't enter the country. In Egypt, they're having great difficulty with uh, getting approval for building permits for churches because the authorities are just cracking down. They don't want the Christian faith to continue to grow. So they're just declining the permits. They're in doing stalling tactics, all kinds of things that make it very difficult for the church in Egypt. Now we could add to this list, and we should add to this list, that the biblical prophets probably face more rejection than anyone has, has ever faced. Just look at Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is where Isaiah has his amazing experience. He, he, you know, the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple. The smoke just goes through. The glory of the Lord is so severe that, that he, you know, he's just overcome. And he hears a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. What a commission for a prophet. Everybody standing at the beginning of their ministry would have wonderful expectations that their ministry would be acceptable. But Isaiah was under no illusions that his ministry would be, quote-unquote, successful. He says, Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. That was Isaiah's commission. History tells us that Isaiah was the prophet that was sawn in two. They stretched him out on a rack and cut him in half. 
So his message was clearly not well received. And yet Isaiah is known as the evangelical prophet. We have a greater description of the crucifixion of Christ in Isaiah 53 than we have in the Gospels. We have more indication in Isaiah's 66 chapters of the grace of God lavished upon sinners than we have anywhere else perhaps in the Old Testament. But his message was not acceptable. Think about Ezekiel. Ezekiel 3. The Lord said to me, Son of man, you are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel, not to people whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I'd sent you to people you could not understand, they would have listened to you. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. But I'll make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than a flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. And we can understand why in Hebrews 11, that great chapter of the heroes of the faith, right at the end, we hear this. Some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two, Isaiah. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves. Think of David fleeing from Saul, holed up in a cave. Or the, the priest maintaining the prophets and keeping 200 of them alive in caves. And holes in the ground. Jeremiah was thrown down a hole. Basically, he thought he was going to die. So as Mark builds up his portrait of Jesus, he shows that despite performing many mighty miracles and him being sort of out of the box, there's never a man who spoke like this man, that, and he spoke clear truth from God and the common people heard him well. They, they eagerly listened to him. By and large, the religious leaders did not receive his message. There was the odd one like Nicodemus who became a follower. But by and large, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the um, you know, the religious leaders of the day refused to hear the message and they were treating Jesus just as they had treated the prophets of old. So listen to what Stephen testifies before the Jewish Sanhedrin just before his stoning. Listen to what he said. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. But Paul's many missionary journeys tell us and subsequent church history shows us that it wasn't just the Jews that rejected Jesus in the gospel. It wasn't just the Jews that persecuted 
the prophets, if you like. This rejecting of the gospel happened to Paul in Gentile places as well. Paul was beaten and stoned in Lystra, imprisoned in Philippi, and and his preaching created a riot in Ephesus. He famously declared to the Ephesian elders, in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So this parable about the, the tenants rejecting the, the people that are sent to him, the messengers from the, from the vineyard owner, is clearly Jesus' response to the religious leader's challenge to his authority. If you go back into chapter 11, you'll even see in the NIV the subheading at verse 27 is the authority of Jesus questioned. The authority of Jesus questioned. They they arrived again in Jerusalem while Jesus was walking in the temple courts. The chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? They were not enamoured with his message. So Jesus tells this parable. And this parable, when we understand this background of rejection and persecution of prophets, takes on a whole new depth of meaning for us. So Jesus began to speak to them. Who's the them? It's the people questioning his authority. And he spoke to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower, then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, the background to this parable has to be from Isaiah 5, where Isaiah tells a parable or a story or likens Israel to a vineyard. Isaiah 5 says, and this is immediately prior to Isaiah 6, Isaiah's commission. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as a well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? But I will tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. I will command the the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So it's clearly telling us what this parable is about. So what's the meaning of Mark's parable? Well, the individual elements are pretty clear. The whole project was a financial venture for the landowner. He planted new vines on untried soil. He rented the vineyard to farmers who would have to wait four years, according to Leviticus. There was three years where they were to do nothing. Then the fourth year was to be tithed to the Lord. Then the fifth year they could eat the produce. So four years they couldn't eat the product of the vine, but they would probably till between the, the rows of, of grapes. 
and they would make, uh, they would have cultivate vegetables and something to eat. So before the vines began to bear grapes, they had to wait this time. And during this time, he would support the farmers. That would be the deal. They would look after the vineyard, prune it, tend it, and he would supply their needs. They would be able to buy manure and supplies for the vineyard, etc., because of the, the, the provision of the vineyard owner. And a new vineyard venture was, was not for immediate return. It had to be looked at in terms of a longer term and benefiting successive generations. The landowner went away on a journey for an extended period, probably because he knew this is going to take a while. It's, it's going to be five years before I really get a return from my vineyard. So in his absence, the tenants cultivating the vineyard have probably developed a sense of ownership, like this is our vineyard. We own this vineyard. We're the ones doing all the work. We never see this bloke. He doesn't show up. He seems to have gone off to a far country. Um, he's enjoying a, a, you know, a tour of Europe. He's going you know, look through you know, one of those boating tours down the Rhine or he's, he's going on a cruise to Alaska. He's, uh, he's really enjoying himself. And they develop this overly responsible sense of ownership as if it's their vineyard to do with as they see fit. It's a bit like us. We can think the same about our bodies. We're told we're not our own. We're bought with a price, therefore glorify God with our body. But it's very easy to think this is my body and I'll do what I want with it, as if we own ourselves. So the tenants worked as sharecroppers and they were entitled to a portion of the produce, but it never gave them ownership. The tenants had made that contract and for the first four years they'd be supported but after that it would be very clear that the vineyard owner would be entitled to a pretty good return. So when the harvest time approached in that fifth year, the landowner sent his servant to collect the income from the vineyard. Contacts between the owner and the tenants might have been fairly minimal. For whatever reason... This lack of contact resulted in alienation and even in hostile attitudes on part of the tenants. And uh, the exact reason for the bitter animosity is not stated, but it's just there as a fact. The servants were was seized, beaten, sent back to the master and returned with the physical evidence of a bruised body. So he had to go back with his tail between his legs and say, look, I got nowhere with these guys. I went there to try and get your return and they just treated me shamefully. Now, the message that the, the, the servant gave back to the owner of the vineyard would have been unmistakable. These guys think they own the vineyard. They are rejecting you. They don't want you here anymore. But his response is to send another one and another one and another one. Look, look what it says. Then they sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. It's clearly likening this to the prophets. Some they killed, some they beat. 
Very, very few of them, if any, were received well. It's, it's becoming clear what this parable is about. So what do we know? The vineyard is Israel. We know that from Isaiah 5. The landowner is God. The tenants are the Jewish religious leaders. The servants are the prophets. And the son who's sent right at the end is the Messiah, the son of God, Jesus Christ. Now Jesus' Jewish audience immediately saw the connection because look at their response. When will it, what, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and kill these tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd so they left him and went away. It was very clear to them what was going on here. He's having a go at us. Luke says in his version, it's interesting this parable of the tenants, and you know, the wicked tenants, the rejected son, is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke says they cried out and said, God forbid, because they knew the implication was that they would take away their nation and give it to another. Just like other nations before them had been driven out and they'd taken possession of the promised land, that, that they, their nation would be taken away and given to another. They, they, they could clearly see that and they say, God forbid. So on the surface, this is a parable of judgment. But really it's so much more than that. So much more. Here's where the good news comes in for us. God's amazing patience, mercy and grace. Who in their right mind, apart from God, would just keep sending, 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 sending to people who treat their workers so shamefully, actually killing them? You would think... Why would he keep doing that? It's because the Lord is going the second and third and 95th mile with his people. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, forgiving sin and iniquity, abounding in loving kindness. So often the prophets said that. Jonah said that. In Exodus we come across that. It's, one, it's a repeated refrain. So at least three points emerge here for us. God is so patient and long-suffering. He waits for his people to bear the fruit which he requires and expects of them, even when they're repeatedly disobedient and even hostile in their rebellion against him. He is exceedingly patient. Somewhere else Jesus spoke about a a guy who owned a, a, a tree and it wasn't bearing any fruit. And the guy who's the the chief owner, uh, sorry, the chief uh, worker in the field said, look, it's not bearing any fruit, I'll cut it down and I'll replant. And the owner says, no, 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 don't do that. Dig around it and, and see if it bears fruit in the next year. And if it doesn't, dig around it again and then see if it bears fruit. And if it won't bear any fruit by the third year, then cut it down. 
It's like the Lord is astonishingly patient with us. He forgives sin and iniquity, even hostile rejection. Some have questioned who in their right mind would keep sending servants like this. But this is our God. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He so loved the world, he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Many times and in different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. And it's true, they treated him shamefully. They murdered him. Think of what Jesus said in in Matthew 23, verse 34. He says, and this is again to the Pharisees, he says, You hypocrites, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, that's when Cain killed Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So he's saying from the first murder in the Old Testament to the last. In our English Bibles, that last murder occurs in Chronicles, which is about midway through the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles, Second Chronicles, was the last book of the Old Testament. So he's saying from the first murder to the last... You've just been like that. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. But it didn't stop God sending his son. It didn't stop Jesus going to the cross. He he prayed and he cried out, let this cup pass from me. He knew what was coming. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. There would be no gospel if Jesus did not persevere and obey the Father and become the obedient son that was rejected. Just think of the grace and the compassion of God. No wonder Paul, who'd been a persecutor of Christians, says, grace, mercy and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder he says that so frequently in his letters. These aren't just empty words or nice-sounding phrases. Paul had lived this. He'd been a persecutor. He, he, he'd done it ignorantly in unbelief and the Lord had opened his eyes and taken the scales away and he'd come to see the magnificent, transforming, patient, long-suffering of God in the gift of his Son. But when we've said all that, we've got to counterbalance it with the fact there will be a day of judgment. There will be a day of judgment. And Jesus warns about that. He says here in this parable, he says, you know, he, he had one left to send a son whom he loved. He, he, sent them, he sent him last of all saying, they'll respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. There is a lake of fire. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Those who stubbornly refuse the multiplied grace of God will face God's consequences. It is appointed to men to die once and after that comes judgment. There is a judgment. A day will come when God's patience is exhausted. The time is up. Those who've rejected him will be destroyed. Now, in a, in a funny kind of a way, I have a, there's something that echoes in the back of my mind that helps me relate to this. When I was at school, I had an American friend called Michael Wedding. We used to tease him about his, his surname. I was living in Darwin at the time. And in, in the classroom one day, I don't know what got into me, I just provoked him. I, I, I was just niggling him and poking him and he started to warn me. He said, look, if you continue with this, I'm going to punch you. You'll know about it. And, and I just kept, <laughs> you know, I was in primary school and, you know, and I kept doing it and then kaboom, he just pumped, punched me fair in the face and I, I was gobsmacked. He said, I told you, I told you, I warned you. And, and I didn't have a leg to stand on because it's true. He had warned me multiple times and then, bang, it came. My silliness, there was a price to it. And it's, it's in a funny kind of a way, God is saying the same thing to us. Look, he is exceedingly abundantly merciful to us, but there is a limit to his patience. His patience, yes, in one sense is infinite, but he will draw the line at a point. And if we just keep persevering and persevering with our own stubborn ways, we're going to face the consequences. We need to wisen up to that. There's going to be a day of judgment. I'm trying to teach that to our son Matthew's dog, Hugo. He just keeps getting out. He breaks out of the backyard. And I've, I've found if I'm just nice and lubby-dubby to him, he meanders everywhere. I've just got to lay down the law with him. He's got to know who the boss is or he takes over. And God needs at certain points to lay down the law with us. We have to realise he is God. But the good thing is nothing can thwart his purposes. God's patient long-suffering, there's going to be a day of judgment, but nothing can thwart his purposes. What, what do we read here? What will the owner do? He'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The vineyard will continue on. Haven't you read this passage? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So rejection wasn't final. It was able to be overcome. Nothing's impossible with God. He could work it out. And it became the cornerstone of a whole new world. Jesus, has be, his death and resurrection has become the foundation of the new and living temple. We're all being built together like living stones into a new temple in Christ. So he's going to raise up new leaders who produce the fruit the original ones failed to supply. Think of the Apostle Paul. 
God's, God's able to turn him completely around. Dr. Luke, a Gentile, a faithful man. He writes Luke's gospel. He writes Acts for us. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. All gifts from heaven and God's going to build his church. And the very gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So Jesus teaches that the seeming endless patience of God is extended toward those who oppose him. But when this patience ends and, and with the rejection of his son, there's going to be retribution, but that's not the final word. This parable of, of the rejected son teaches us two important truths. We are God's enemies from birth, haters of God, Deserving his wrath. We must be born again. But where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Look at Romans 5. This is at the heart of Paul laying out this gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The Jewish rejection needn't have been final. Even we know at the end they'll be grafted back in again. God is amazingly patient. Romans 5 verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? If when we were God's enemies... We've got to accept that our basic default position before God in an unconverted state is we're enemies of God. We're not by nature lovers of God. That requires an act of grace. That requires God's unmerited favour. That requires a new birth. That requires the Holy Spirit to come in and soften our heart and change us so that he takes away the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Without that, we would remain enemies of God. So we're, we're God's enemies from birth. But God multiplies and lavishes his loving kindness upon us It doesn't put him off. He loves his enemies. Look what it says later in that same chapter, verses 20 and 21, Romans 5. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So accepting if you want to get anywhere with God you've got to accept base one you are God's enemy outside of Christ but that's not the final word about you by nature we're children of wrath but God is able to change us by grace and give us a new nature so that we become children of the most high God He lavishes his loving kindness upon us and he promises to give us the kingdom. It is your father's delight to give you the kingdom. He wants, that's why he sent the prophets that we rejected and and have such difficulty with. We're born rebels who break God's law and deny Christ. Peter denied Christ with oaths and curses, but with bitter tears he repented and God received him back. Listen to this. If we confess our sins, he, God, 
is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's grace. Unmerited favour, undeserved kindness. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God is kind to us, tender-hearted, forgiving. We're to be like that toward one another because God has been like that toward us. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent of your enmity. Repent of of your disinterest. Repent of your rebellion. Turn aside from your sin. Come to me and I will receive you. I will never turn you away. So when the gospel is preached, the kingdom of heaven is placed within our grasp. For receiving, feeding upon and entering into that kingdom. If someone offered any of us the privilege of becoming king or queen or prime minister or a multi-billionaire, it would be nothing compared with the privilege of becoming a son or daughter of the Most High God. Nothing. Come, let's kill him, are the same words spoken by Jacob's sons when they connived to get rid of Joseph. He's the heir. Come, let's kill him. They stuck him down a well until they saw they could profit from him. These are brothers treating their brother this way. If the tenants kill the heir, they reason, they'll be able to take over and, and it'll be ours. And Jesus says, I've got a better way. I'll come. I'll take the punishment. You're really rejecting God. But in in your rejection of me and rejecting God through me, you will be reconciled to God. I will take the punishment. I will bear the price. The despised and rejected Messiah becomes the cornerstone of a whole new world. God can't be put off that easily, can he, by our sin. What the builders reject, God turns into a cornerstone. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? Have you fronted up to the fact that by na- of what you are by nature, that we're really by nature no different from those re- Jewish religious leaders. We're no, really no different from Joseph's brothers. We're really no different from anyone else. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What hope? Let that wash over you. Let that melt your heart. Let that give you encouragement. That you might have been despised and rejected by others, but the Lord will not forsake you. You might have gone through all kinds of difficulties. He will be with you. And even if your life does continue to have trials and difficulties, so precious are you to him, so precious is, will be your dust in the grave that he will resurrect it. Jesus is the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. 
Do you believe this? This is the hope of the gospel. This is why we celebrate. This is the good news we want to share with others. It's not just the parable of the wicked tenants. It's the parable of the rejected son, which is really the parable of the unbelievably gracious father. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are who you are. There is truly none like you. You lavish loving kindness upon the most undeserving people. Help us to really accept that by nature we are children of wrath, deserving of destruction. But that is not the final word about us. That if we will humble ourselves before you, if we will come to you, you will not cast us away if we will own our sin, even in that parable, Father, if the the religious leaders had realised Jesus spoke the parable against them and sunk to their knees and cried out for mercy, you would not have rejected them. Oh, Father, I pray, grant us encouragement that when we go through rejection, when we experience that... uh, great difficulty of unanswered prayer or what appears to be unanswered prayer it could be a no and we don't like it and we find our our human nature is still there rising up and in indignation and rebellion saying but why but why i deserve better when we own our, our what we are by nature we can begin to see the glory of our lord jesus christ the grace lavished upon us, that while we were still sinners, your enemies, Christ died for us. Thank you, Father. But although our sin is terrible and even abounding, your grace is able to abound even more. Blessed be your name. Give hope, give encouragement to anyone here today who is struggling in their walk with you. May we draw near and know that you will hear us. For Christ's sake. Amen.